In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Folks, we are back. Progressive Radio Network, I'm your host, Vince Emanuel. You are listening to Meditations in Molotovs. That was Three Teeth, the industrial metal band of Los Angeles, California. Please check them out. Meditations in Molotovs airs every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time. That's 11 a.m. on the West Coast and 1 p.m. where I am located here in the Central. So, today's program... We'll be talking with Michael Albert. Should be a good show. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Michael is, he is the founder of Z Magazine. He's also the founder of ZNet and the co-founder of South End Press. He's an author, an activist, and what I would consider, who I would consider to be a sort of so um, alternative media pioneer in many ways. And his website has functioned in such an amazing way for so many of us. You know, he's um, truly been, I think, an inspiration for a lot of people and projects that have followed after him. I mean, a lot of us on the left, in other words, owe a debt of gratitude, I think, to the work that Michael has done and others like him. And people who have followed in his footsteps and others around the world who have been engaged in similar projects. So that will be happening in about 10 minutes. Until then, uh, you know... We just had or just wrapped up the week-long uh, international series of week. Well, I'm sorry. Let me back up here. So there was a week-long worth of events, a whole week's worth of events that took place internationally. Some of these events were coordinated, and it was sort of a rolling effect. So when you know, say one day, ten days ago, there was an event in Australia, then there would be an event in the Philippines and in Germany, and so on. There were quite literally hundreds of thousands of people throughout the world yesterday who participated in the Break Free from Fossil Fuels event. And so for those of you who have been listening to previous programs, we have been, you know, I've been trying to lead up to yesterday's event with some good guests to speak about those issues, particularly Thomas Frank. So if you go back and look at the previously archived shows, you'll find an interview with a local activist and artist Thomas Frank, not to be confused with the other author, Thomas Frank. Nonetheless, go check it out. Uh, Thomas lives in northwest Indiana, and he was one of the sort of central figures who were responsible for putting together this great event yesterday in Whiting, Indiana. So my initial re uh, reactions to the event are pretty positive. So in, let's talk about the positive, and then I'll bring up just some critiques, advice, um, observations that I had. First and foremost, I think we should recognize that there was a direct action and a large environmental uh, event, I mean, at least by the, for our standards here in northwest Indiana, and to bring attention to the tar sands refinery and the oil refinery in Whiting, Indiana, the BP oil refinery. So BP 
owns a section of land that's bigger than many of the cities. It's almost as big as some of the counties in Indiana. And they operate out of Whiting, Indiana. The Koch brothers are tied in. There's, you know, the stuff Pet Coke that's, I mean, Thomas explained it better during the program. But so this stuff comes from the, the process of trying to refine the tar sands. And then they were putting the Pet Coke on barges in the old neighborhood where I used to live in the 10th Ward on what they call the southeast side of Chicago. And so there's an organization. I should actually just mention this right now. There's an organization to ban Pet Coke, not only in the region, you know, because it's one thing for activists on the southeast side of Chicago to say, well, we don't want Pet Coke in our backyard, but we don't care if they put it somewhere in Indiana. No, the the coalition, the Chicago southeast side coalition to ban Pet Coke wants to end the storage of pet coke anywhere. Well, of course, they're also interested in stopping the production and the use of tar sands and other fossil fuels as well. So for people who want to plug into that, that's ban pet coke, the Chicago Southeast Side Coalition to Ban Pet Coke is their Facebook. So you just look them up on Facebook or just Google Chicago Southeast Side Coalition to Ban Pet Coke. Check out their work. There's an organizer who's involved with them who I met some years ago at the Participatory Democracy Conference here in Gary, Indiana. Her name is Olga Batista. So make sure to check out Olga's work. I'm sure if you Google her, you could probably find her on Twitter or on Facebook. Nonetheless, she's one of the leaders in the Chicago Southeast Side Coalition to Ban Pet Coke. And she's a, you know, sort of a broader progressive community leader here in northwest indiana and on the southeast southeast side of chicago in the 10th ward and there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the 10th ward i mean you know so this is an area that was dominated by the democratic political machine john pope people like uh, fast uh, eddie and then in the the 2014 or i believe it was the 2014 elections Susan Sadlowski Garza, who's a local, uh, not only works with the CP, CPU, or not the CPU, geez, I am totally off today. Uh, she's with the Chicago Teachers Union, the CTU. And she comes from a sort of rich history of activism in her family and beyond. So her dad was a union organizer. A lot of members in her family are union organizers, members of unions and so forth. She comes from a rich tradition and there's members of my family and her family who have worked together in those areas. And it's it's a small neighborhood. I mean, as much as it's a huge section of the city of Chicago, it's also quite a small neighborhood. So some of the other things that were passed out yesterday at the Break Free event, say no to the TPP, say no to losing more jobs and lower wages, rig trade is not free trade. So there was a lot of people passing out information about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That was good to hear. This particular flyer is telling people to go to www.flushthetpp.org. That's www.flushthetpp.org. Also, uh, there were some railroad employees from the Railroad Workers United who gave some great speeches tying together some of what they're uh, dealing with on their job sites, what they're transporting, and so forth. And it turns out that 40% of everything that's transported 
on these rail cars in the United States right now in 2016 is actually coal. So 40% of every rail car that's in motion in the United States is packed with coal. That's amazing. So for people who want to plug into this organization, this is Railroad let me Railroad Workers United. Their number is 202-798-3327 if you want to call them, if you'd like to check out their website, www.railroadworkersunited.org. That's easy to remember, Railroad Workers United. Just Google them, check out their information, see what they have coming up, and see if you'd like to help out or get involved with their organization. So I'll talk about some more of this next week. I'm not sure who we're going to have on the program next Monday. It could be Raul Contreras, who's a good friend of mine. and He's an author and activist and also um, a professor here at Indiana University Northwest in Gary, Indiana. Great guy. He's been putting on the Participatory Democracy Conference in Gary for the last seven, eight years. And I think you know, what I would like to get him to do is to bring out someone like Michael Albert to really go in-depth about some of these issues and talk about things that Michael's been working on for many, many years now. So for those, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to have Michael on the program here in a couple minutes. Let me quickly introduce him for those who don't know him. So this is from the zcom.org website. That's Z Communications that you can Google or zmag.org or zcomm.org. So Michael Albert is the founder and current member of the staff of Z Magazine, as well as staff of Z Magazine's web system, Z Communications, or zmag.org. Albert's radicalization occurred during the 1960s. His political involvements, starting then and continuing to the present, have ranged from local, regional, and national organizing projects and campaigns to co-founding South End Press, Z Magazine, the Z Media Institute, and ZNet, to working on all of these projects, writing for various publications and publishers, giving public talks, and so forth. His personal interests outside of the political realm focus on general science reading with an emphasis on physics, math, and matters of evolution and cognitive science, computers, mystery and thriller adventure novels, sea kayaking, and more sedentary but no less challenging game of Go!, Albert is the author of 21 books. Most recently, these include Fanfare for the Future, Remembering Tomorrow, Realizing Hope, and Paracon, Life After Capitalism. So without further ado, let's bring Michael on the line here so we can start the conversation. Mike, are you there? Oh, yeah. Hello. Okay, great. Great. So you can hear me fine. Yep. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Good. Thanks for coming on the program. Uh, thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your personal history, Mike. Something I like to do with the guests who come on the program is to personalize them a little bit, give people an idea of how they became politically involved and what that process was like. You know, one of the more interesting things I found asking people that I run into in this line of work is what got you involved and what keeps you involved. You know, what were your experiences first coming up as an activist? I don't know how old you are now, but I know... As your bio says, you know, you've been around since the 1960s doing this work. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that. So it's like Methuselah. I'm laughing. I'm 69. Uh, <laughs> well, I was radicalized in the, uh, in the 60s, as you said. It happened that uh, I happened to be uh, attending the MIT, which is a kind of a technical 
science school, and that's what I was there for. I was going to be in physics. And uh, the war was raging, and the civil rights movement, and uh, these these uh, phenomena in society sort of trumped what I was doing in uh, what would have been, I suppose you could say, my career had it not been for all that political activity. And I became more and more politically involved. Uh, a lot of it at the beginning was directly around the war or uh, around things related to the campus uh, where I was and the Boston area, also Cambridge. And then it branched out from there, especially into media and into thinking about uh, answering the question, basically, what do you want? What, what, what is it that we're seeking? So is your family political at this time, Mike? Uh, well, you know, everybody's political in some sense, but I think in the sense you mean it, no. Uh, there was nobody in, in my family who was what you'd call a leftist or a radical or an activist or anything like that, and at least to my knowledge, hadn't ever been. Um, uh, so that that wasn't a big factor. I think their values were a factor and so on, but I, it wasn't as if I was introduced to left thought that way. So the people you grew up with, they didn't have a problem with this. Friends, family, people that you, you know, outside of people you met at the university. Um, no, not really. When I think about it, uh, in high school, there was the beginnings of glimmerings. Uh, people were aware that the civil rights struggles were happening. Uh, actually, some people from where I was from had gone south, but I didn't know them at the time. Uh I suppose this, the first, honestly, the first real political interaction or political thoughts I had probably stemmed from listening to Dylan uh, uh, at the time and uh, moved on from there until college and then uh, becoming really that much more radical and moving on. Well, and what was that period like after college? So you're involved with the movement. Give me some kind of a time frame here. So what, what year did you get out of college? I was in the class of 69, but I was thrown out earlier than that for political activities. <laughs> and uh, So they bounced uh, you from MIT? Yeah, that was, uh, I think I'm the only person who's ever been thrown out of MIT for, for such reasons. Uh, I was pretty notorious at the time. Uh, <laughs> to give you a feeling, I suppose, uh, one of the things among many, was I I ran for what was called undergraduate association president. That was sort of president of the whole student body, not one year's worth. And I ran on the following kind of issues or platform, I guess you could call it. No more war research, which is, that's a major kind of thing at MIT since it's built around technology and war research. Um, we demanded a $100,000 indemnity to the Black Panther Party, opening the uh, campus resources to working-class communities in the neighborhood, um, open admissions. It just went on and on, uh, and I won. And that was a fiasco for the administration and the faculty, both of whom tried to prevent it. Um, but it did happen, and then I used the resources for political purposes, and the school was a complete turmoil. And eventually they had to try and um, quell things in part by trying getting rid of me. It didn't help them, but they tried uh, for 
rather dubious reasons. And uh, uh, later, uh, I, I don't know how much of this you want to hear, but it, it, it is sort of interesting. Uh, MIT, like many institutions, <clears throat> after the fact, likes to have an image that's different from reality. So they want to be able to say, or they wanted to be able to say, we went through the 60s and we were mature and sober and we didn't throw anybody out um, in any lasting way. So what they had to do in order to be able to say that was to take me back. And so later on, um, they you know, told my father they would give me a degree if I did some things. I refused to do any of them. It's just basically academic things. Um, they gave it to me anyway because they so much wanted uh, to be able to say they had. Um, it, it, it was a travesty, as most dealings with major institutions are. My goodness. So you go to MIT, you're a regular student, you get involved with politics, then you get booted. And what Now, what year are we talking? We're talking early 70s now, late 60s. What are you doing for work? I mean, what are people, you know, people no, are probably... I was thrown out probably, I guess, in 68 or 69, right around there. Okay. Um, I actually spent a while um, doing all kinds of work, uh, house painting. Um, uh, actually, one job I had uh, was um, manning a, a computer very late at night. Um, sounds sort of like maybe it would be interesting, but it wasn't. It was basically just sitting in this room until the little gong on the computer would tell me, uh, you have to switch this big disc, which I would do, totally manual and totally without any knowledge on my part of what the hell I was doing. Um, um, but the nice thing was that it was a, a night job, uh, and it entailed nothing except, you know, I had to have somebody there to be ready to do it, but it didn't take much time. So I could read all night, or, or if I wanted to, I could even bring a small TV in and watch a ball game or something. Uh, so I did that and uh, other such things. Um, uh, I don't even remember all of them. Eventually, uh, we started South End Press, and from then on, I was working all the time in uh, radical media. So South End Press precedes... Z Communications, Z Magazine, anything. That was the first sort of entity of alternative media that you got involved with. Yes. Uh, and how did that come about? I had done a book, um, which Lydia, the woman I was with and still am, uh, and I worked on physically, that is. It's one thing to write a book. It's another thing to produce it. And right. for a small publisher in Boston, um, um, we did a lot of the work on it. So all of a sudden, we knew how to do that, or at least up to a point. And we felt that the kind of politics that had existed through the 60s, or at least that we were part of, um, a very multi-issue part of politics, which was addressing uh, race, gender, class, power, um, very anti-authoritarian, and so on, we, we felt that this kind of... of political position uh, could use a publishing house. And we got some people together, and we just uh, started doing it. In those days, it was actually much, much harder than now because you didn't have the thing called desktop publishing that you have now. Instead, um, preparing a book was a much, much more laborious project. So for many years, we, well, actually only about, I guess, 10 or 11 years until I went on to the magazine, um, 
but in any case, for those years, we, we built up this institution called South End Press doing political book publishing. Now, who else was around at that time? I mean, was this something that other people were doing? Was this Were you guys some of the first people to do this? I, I'm not sure what you're asking. Who was working Who else was around, was around publishing material in that fashion? You know, like a small independent publisher for left-wing well, activists and so forth. Monthly Review, which still exists, um, existed then. Uh, it preceded us by quite a long time. The people who started that, Paul Sweezy, some other folks, um, had had done so much earlier. Uh, other than that, I you know I don't really remember. I, I don't think there was another left press of of a similar degree. Um, there were some later, but not earlier. Uh, and the people who were involved in in that press. Uh, you know, we're still in some way or another political, some, you know, to different, different degrees. Uh, but it was only Lydia and I who went on from there to do uh, Z Magazine and um, the various activities that are associated with it. The press at the beginning was very much dependent upon support from Noam, uh, his books, Chomsky, uh, from, you know, a few other people whose books did quite well. Uh, along with many people whose books were also really excellent, but of course wouldn't do quite as well. Um, so it was a big struggle financially all the time to to persist, um, but we did, and and then moved on to other activities related but different. So bring us up to that period. What time are what time frame are we talking about now? So you 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 start South End Press. What year is this? Um. Uh, or just roughly. I, I don't know, 78, I'm guessing. Okay, so you said about 10 years of that. So now Z Communications, Z, well, Z Magazine, that started, uh, you're saying, in the late 80s. Correct. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then that uh, eventually it persisted. It still exists, um, but it diversified to to Internet activities, and we did that very, very early before there was a World Wide Web. Uh, uh, so the first thing we were doing was sort of providing, I don't know to the extent to which your readers will remember, you had dial-up connections and you might work through something like America Online or there were a few others like that um, where your Internet connectivity came through the phone um, in a dial-up manner and was relatively slow. And uh, at those times, we, we started doing the Internet. Um, and then moved eventually into uh, the web. There are all sorts of projects. Uh, I mean, this is all of this stuff involves many different projects, some of which worked, some of which didn't. And what, so when you're talking about the act, like starting this in, on the internet, being one of the first people on the internet, do you attribute that to your interest in computers and physics and so forth? Like, were you ahead of the game when it comes to that kind of technology? Um, well, it depends what you mean by ahead of the game. You know, Bill Gates was ahead of the game. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so not in that sense, I wasn't. Um, but, yeah, I think it's probably true that, well, uh, let me give you an example. When, when we did the, um, uh, the starting uh, Internet activity and the dial-up, you had to provide people with with a disk. So in other words, let's say you wanted to do your internet 
through, um, at the time, Z Magazine. Uh, I think it was called Left Online was the thing that we called it. Uh, so that would mean you would get from us a disc, and that disc had software on it, and you'd put the software on your computer, and you'd open it, and when you opened it, you could um, use it to dial, literally dial, phone, dial by phone into our our operation, and from there you could do rudimentary email, that's what it was then, and um, facilities that we would provide. There was no World Wide Web, so forms that we would provide and so on. So, yeah, I had to sort of code the the disk, the, the program that we sent to people. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, the technical uh, background was of some use, but I wouldn't want to go overboard. It was mostly just uh, pretty trivial. Okay. So now Z Magazine still exists. Z Communications is still out there. And as you mentioned, there's a ton of sort of subcomponents to that, to those projects mm-hmm. or those entities. So what do you think makes your project or, or the collective project of ZNet and Z Communications and Z Magazine so much different than a lot of the other alternative media sites? And I think people will notice this just as an aside. I think a lot of people will notice this as soon as they go to the actual website, that it is structured much differently and allows for different well, forums and components than other alternative media sites. You know what? I, pre- I appreciate you saying that. I think honestly, it's less different than it once was, except in one respect. Um, so, at one time, it was very different because it, as you say, offered a lot of stuff that that others just weren't into into dealing with. We still do to a degree, but now. The audience, so to speak, the the universe of people who uses left and radical media um, don't use those features as much. So I don't think it distinguishes us so much. Um, We have content, others have content, and so on. I would say now, if I had to say the two things that maybe distinguish the Z operations from other online left operations is first um, that we put more effort into... Um, vision and strategy as compared to the almost universal emphasis, which we also address on understanding what's going on in society, describing how bad things are and why and so on. Uh, We spend a lot of time answering the question, what do you want and how do you get it, uh, as compared to just the question, what's wrong and why. So that's one, I think, difference in emphasis uh, that I happen to think matters a lot. And um, another difference is hard for me to talk about because it's, uh, well, in any case, I think we spend a good deal more time than most others do trying to address questions that, or issues that are larger than ourselves, uh, even in the world of, of media and beyond. So, for instance, everybody has trouble with money, to use one example. So one way you can think about that problem, the problem basically of just functioning and surviving uh, in a difficult situation, is trying to figure out how to raise funds. And any left institution like uh, Z or Once Upon a Time South Empress or any other has to concern itself with this Uh, in a a pretty central way because if it fails at this, it fails, no matter how good its ideas are or its energy is. so one way to do that is to think solely in terms of financially succeeding oneself. 
And another way to think about that is to try and solve the problem more broadly uh, for the left, per se, or for media, per se. And he spends, uh, at least as best I can see, a whole lot more time than anybody else trying to solve the general problem, trying to contribute um, uh, ideas and actual projects which could solve the problem, not just for us, but for everyone. And the same goes a little bit for some other things. So, for instance, um, uh, you know, in, in, in addressing ideas of consciousness or what's wrong or what we want, you can do that just from the perspective of sort of putting out information. Or you can do it from the perspective of, well, what happens to the information and does something uh, arise from it um, in the form of organization or in the form of... Uh, uh, you know, being used, and again, we we concern ourselves greatly with both those aspects. Well, and that's why there's a lot of activists that write for Z. I mean, I get a lot more of that. I mean, I and I get emails every day from all kinds of different media entities. But you know, I mean, I'll look at say, and I'm I'm not trying to knock anyone in specific. I'm just bringing up say uh, something like Jacobin. So I enjoy a lot of the stuff that comes out of Jacobin good information, sometimes really good essays, sometimes so-so essays. But what I've noticed with Jacobin is that a lot of the people when I go to their bios uh, are PhD candidates. Uh, they're people who are already teaching at universities uh, and so forth. Whereas, you know, I will notice with Z, what I do like is that you'll get people who are on the ground with these different movements, just rank-and-file workers, union representatives, uh, environmentalists, and so forth. So that's, I mean, maybe that's, I don't know what you know, comes first. Obviously, you guys are putting out the vision, so I'm assuming it's probably attracting a certain kind of people. Um, I know one of the reasons why I started sending you material was because uh, I felt more comfortable sending it to you guys than I did other folks because I just figured, well, they'll be interested in what I have to say because they seem more interested in, you know, just say what a regular activist uh, from Northwest Indiana thinks about something. Um, so that's one of the reasons I know why I sent my material to you first as opposed to other sites where I felt very intimidated, you know, where I'm looking at these bios and I'm like, well, this guy wrote 10 books and this guy graduated from Yale and this guy did this or this woman did this. And, you know, I think for a lot of people that can become intimidating as I think sometimes, you know, on the left, these institutions, they kind of replicate a lot of the same structures or a lot of the same cultures as what we have in like regular society where people feel intimidated if they're not an expert, you know, if that makes yeah, any I, sense. I mean, this is actually in many ways, at the heart of what V tries to do. One of the... Everybody on the left has an analysis of racism, has an analysis of sexism, has an analysis of sort of authoritarianism, a fierce way, has an analysis of uh, capitalism, of private ownership. Serious leftists understand these things, attend to them, address them at least at the level of trying to understand them and explain them and... Uh, you know, reveal the, the, the truths, and hopefully also at the level of, well, what do we do about them, and what do we want instead? What would it look like to have something uh, better, and then how do we orient ourselves to get there? Okay, so that's across the board. Maybe not the last vision part, but, but the rest is across the board uh, in all the outfits, whether movement groups or organizations or media outfits that you might list. Uh, but then there's another dimension, and this dimension isn't, isn't really taken up very much by, well, 
really by hardly anybody. And the dimension is, is a part of what you were just talking about. It's that society isn't only divided on race lines, on gender lines, and on property lines, which is the line of capital, uh, people who own means of production, and workers. So that's a, that's a division there. That, that, that designation, that difference, is built around different ownership of property. Okay, well, there's another dividing line that exists, at least I believe, that's of great consequence. And it's a dividing line that occurs not around property, but in the economy and around um, the character of work that one does, and thus the associated uh, sort of training, uh, and, and the extent to which that work causes one to be empowered by one's daily activities or disempowered. And I think what you're describing... See, what happens is, is that the people who are in the empowered positions, engineers, lawyers, doctors, um, accountants, uh, financial officers, and so on, um, also have to have um, uh, credentials, training. It's not... Um, everybody thinks that the training is absolutely crucial for the work uh, to a degree, but actually more of what's going on is that the training gives one credentials that justifies... Um, uh, the position one has. Anyway, the intimidation that people feel often has to do with this different class division. Uh, coordinator class, I would call it, who monopolizes empowering positions in the economy and then in society. And instead, working people who are left with more rote obedient um, and uh, disempowering tasks. And the result of that is, is that if you spend your day, a big part of your life, therefore, an activity that disempowers you, well, that's the way you feel. If, if your tasks don't give you social connections, don't give you a sense of, of uh, well-being, don't uh, uplift your creativity and your energies, but instead damp all that, and on the other hand, somebody else's task furthers all that, well, that second person, that coordinator class person is in a dominant position. And Z tries to address this issue as well as all the other ones. And um, it tries to recognize that if you build movements and you're insensitive to this, you'll get a dynamic inside the movement where those people who have those degrees, which really inside the movement should count for virtually nothing, um, dominate. And the people who have... The, the habits and the circumstances um, in their broader lives and in their prior lives before the movement and in their jobs while they're in the movement um, that empower them tend to dominate. Uh, and, and that's very harmful uh, because it leads to a left which is very limited uh, in, in what it will say and do and challenge about society. Um, many debates that the left has take for granted that society simply has to be this way, that 20% of the population is, is somehow intrinsically more worthy of making decisions, and 80% of the population is somehow intrinsically more suited to obeying um, uh, and, and uh, doing road activity. And that's just total nonsense. That's no more true than the idea that, uh, you know, women 
should be in the home and, and men should dominate or that uh, a particular race uh, should dominate others or, for that matter, that owners of property should dominate. It's a social structure, and it, it, while people tend to be sucked into accepting it and taking it for granted, it should be critiqued, understood, and then overthrown. And uh, that's something that V focuses on, which I think distinguishes us quite a bit from most others on the left. Well, and I've seen that personally just, oh, man, I'm trying to think now. I mean, with different NGOs, especially sure. uh, especially in that realm of, like, the 501c3 groups that I've worked with, there's a lot of very credentialed, professional class people who come from very specific universities, very specific class backgrounds. Uh, you know, I'll give you sort of an anecdote. I remember being in Chicago as an anti-war organization um, that will remain unnamed. But nonetheless, there was a bunch of people in this room, a bunch of working class people who were from Chicago, from the surrounding area. And we had a facilitator for the workshop who grew up in the Bay Area. And we had people running the workshop who went to school, some, I don't know what's some kind of training school, eight-week training school in the Bay Area, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with the Bay Area. Uh, these are people who came from like very privileged backgrounds, and I don't mean, um, you know, like very sort of slight privileges. I mean, these are people who came from money, you know, people who really, there's very hard for a lot of us to probably relate to uh, on any, uh, you know, immediate level for the people who are in the workshop. And they're trying to tell us about privilege. You know, this was <laughs> it was pretty wild. I mean, I remember sitting there thinking, man, we've got all these, you know, working class people and even poor people and so on who are in this room right now. And we have a bunch of people from this class that you're that you're talking about or from this, you know, these credentialed people who have these jobs where they're working in an NGO, say, making 70, 80, 90,000 a year, talking to a bunch of people who are working part time jobs, trying to explain to us what it's what privilege is all about and how we could be more sensitive to certain issues uh you know within the working class and among poor people instead of like sitting back and listening to what people from a lot of those uh areas have to say about you know what they were trying to uh, inform us about and this caused all kinds of problems within the organization okay. constantly uh division between people who had a specific set of training or or a series of trainings and people who are just coming to this work, say, as a regular Joe or Jane, you know, just saying, hey, I'm, I'm interested in this topic. I came to a meeting. How do I get involved? Um, yeah. And other people who are sort of brought up in a whole, it seemed like a whole sort of pedigree of being trained for being in these positions, you know, going to very specific universities, making connections at those universities with other people who are going to work in that arena, and then going to further training schools and, you know, post bachelor degrees and all this other stuff. Uh, very, yeah. very different experience than, say, a lot of the people I met who are just regular, you know, whatever, uh, workers and so forth. Much of it is a kind of finishing school. I mean, you actually use the word connections there, and that's what you pay for. Uh, you know, when you go to Harvard or Yale or wherever, what you're doing is not what is is described. You know, you're becoming highly knowledgeable and you're using your vast uh, mental faculties, which are so much greater than everybody else's. That's nonsense. What's actually happening is um, people who are going to be masters of the universe are meeting other people who are going to be masters of the universe and making connections. Um, and that's what you're paying for. But let me just 
if if you had gone, suppose 50 years ago, you put all the surgeons in the United States in a stadium, a very large stadium, and you looked around. Um, if you did that, you would see something striking. They would be um, white and male. Uh, so let's let's use one characteristic: they'd be male, overwhelmingly, virtually entirely. Um, and if you had asked them about it. They would say, well, of course, that's the case. Yes, we can see we are all men and we are surgeons and we deserve it because we are smarter and women can't do this. And they believed it um, or they told themselves it. And on top of that, if you went outside the stadium and you ask women, lots of them would say the same thing, uh, that the men are in there because they can do it and we can't. Um, not all, but, but quite a lot. Now, suppose we fast forward to now. Um, that wouldn't happen anymore in quite the same way. Some people would hold such views, but the reality is, is that um, medical schools in the United States are now a little bit over 50% women. So, you, you, you know, that's gone. Um, it could come back, but at least at that level, sexism has been fought. But suppose we ask the question about, about class, and suppose we again fill that stadium with um, all surgeons. So now there's men and women and, and also some blacks and Latinos and so on. Um, it's not as proportionate as it should be in many respects, but nonetheless. And you now look at that group and you say, well, what about the people who are outside? And they would say, well, they're not out. They're not in here. They can't do this work. They can't be lawyers. They can't be doctors. And it's because they're incapable of it. And now they're talking about the working class. We're talking about the people who are doing rote and repetitive labor. And what I'm saying is that it is no more true now, the claim now about working people incapable, than it was true then, the claim about women incapable. Instead, it's a social structure. It was a social structure then that kept women from utilizing their capacities and talents in diverse ways, including becoming surgeons, and instead consigned them to a, a position that, that, that was oppressive, uh, that, that restricted their, their options. And now the same thing is true for working people. If working people go through school, learn how to endure boredom and how to take orders, that's what public school teaches working people. That's basically the, the primary uh, lesson and achievement of public education, to get people ready to fill slots in which they, you know, must, must, uh, must obey on penalty of being fired and must endure boredom because the work is tedious and rote. And they, they're, you know, it isn't enriched with anything beyond that. And, and it's not a matter of incapacity. It's a matter of subjugation. And for working people to understand that, so, so suppose the left understood that. Suppose the left really understood that. Well, if we really understood that, then the same way that we would say about, let's take a left media group since we were talking about that, the same way that somebody on the left would say, our media group should not have a racist hierarchy within it. Our media group should not have a sexist hierarchy within it. We would also say our media group should not have a class hierarchy within it. But then that would mean not only that we don't have it owned by somebody, which everybody on the left would typically agree to, um, our, our 
media institution should not be the private property of some capitalist owner. We also should not have the familiar division of labor. We should not have about one-fifth of the people who work at the media institution doing all of the empowering work and the rest doing mostly rote and obedient work. We shouldn't have that. We should divide up our work in a way that has everybody doing a fair share of empowering work and thus everybody involved in decisions, not just formally, but because our circumstances prepare us to actually participate effectively. Okay, the left doesn't have that. And if the left did have that, it would be a quite different place. And I think... You know, the phenomenon that you were talking about would be um, far less prevalent and maybe totally absent. Uh, and that would make for a very diff- different set of potentials and strengths for the left. And do you think that that's something that human beings do want? I mean, I know that's a big question. But, I mean, so, are, for for instance, like in this election cycle, we've been working with people – in the Bernie campaign, and I'm running. I mean, we've run into so many thousands of different people from different perspectives. There's some people who want a more participatory society. They want to be involved in these decision-making processes. There's other people we're running into who are just saying, "Look, you know, I'm just realizing that things are getting as bad as they are. Uh, I didn't know that I was going to have to pay attention like this, or maybe this isn't really what I'm into, but I know this is the right thing to do." I mean. Do, do you think that there's a certain percentage of the population that wants to be engaged on that level? Or do you think, and then how do you incorporate the, say, what, I mean, whatever the percentage may be? I'm not going to argue that I would know that. I'm just saying, say it's right. 30% of society that doesn't really want to be involved in this all the time. Or say it's even half of society. But there's another half that if given the opportunity under the right circumstances within the right institutions or institutional structures, they would want to be a part of a society where they're constantly making these decisions. I mean, how do you incorporate those different perspectives in what it is you're, you were just saying to me? Well, first, first, again, suppose we went back 50 years, and suppose you asked um, the women outside whether they wanted to be surgeons. A great many would say no. A great many would be afraid of it and would also feel like, look at the way they treat each other. Look at the culture there. Right. So now, fast, now, fast forward to now. If you ask somebody, do you want to be a participant in the decisions that affect your life, it may very well be a perfectly sensible response to say no. So in other words, if if you're going to be a participant in that, but the institutions are unchanged, then it means you're going to have to make choices that are despicable about yourself. In other words, take a workplace. If the workplace has to compete on the market, if the workplace has to compete for profits, if the workplace has to cut costs by getting rid of daycare or not having it, by dumping its garbage in the local neighborhood, and on and on and on, then do you want to be a participant in those decisions? Meaning, do you want to rubber stamp what the institutions dictate? Or do you want to just not bother because it's so alienating? Well, I think the second choice is perfectly reasonable. But now if you ask instead... And how do you ask this? And I'll tell you how I I thought about it, uh, basically your question. I used to say in talks often, suppose God came down to earth. You don't have to believe in God or not believe in God. The point is, um, it's a a thought experiment. Yeah, no, Um, go ahead. That's what physicists call it. Um, So God comes down to earth, um, and, and, um, you know, 
talks to the planet, or let's take the United States, um, talks to the U.S. population and says, uh, hey, uh, we're going to have an election now. And in the election, um, it's going to be a little different than it's ever been before. If anybody lies, I'm going to turn them to stone. One lie and you're stoned. Uh, if anybody says they're going to do something and wins, they are going to do it. The program will be fulfilled. So in this election, if you vote, you are voting for truth. That is, what you are hearing is truthful. And if, if you, your side wins, the program that is proposed is going to be implemented, because I'm going to guarantee that. So this is real. This is a real election. Now we can ask ourselves, and, and suppose the candidates are, um, well, I mean, we could do it just the way it is now, Sanders and Trump. Um, or you can make it a little better and make it, uh, you know, Chomsky and Trump or Chomsky and Cruz so that both sides are, you know, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. And now how many would vote? Would right. it be the 50% to typically vote? Right. See, I think it would be 120%. I think we would discover people that has never, you know, that weren't in any of the roles any place, that weren't even in the census. Because well, what you're saying jives with my experiences, man. I mean, look, the, mm-hmm. you know how many people I've been running into over the last 12 months of the Sanders campaign who are saying, you know, Vince, uh, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get fooled again. I'm tired of the bullshit. I'm not going to go through this again. I've been lied to in the past. I've done this before. I mean. There's been plenty right, of people. But I'm I mean, this, isn't, that. this isn't sort of a new phenomenon. I mean, I've been hearing this for 10 years now from people. So what you're saying jives with my anecdotal experiences of being an activist but, on the ground. But, but wait, the thought experiment erases all that. The thought experiment says this election actually matters. Everything that's being presented is truthful, and the program that wins is going to be implemented. Right? Right. Everybody's going to vote. And not right. only is everybody going to vote, but if it's Chomsky and, uh, and Cruz or Sanders and Trump, Chomsky or Sanders is going to win 80%. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, 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 the campaign also has to be totally, you know, public and, uh, you know, full debates and on and on. And if sure. you think it through, you see. So what it tells you is that when you ask questions about what, do humans want, or what will people do, or what you have to you have to discuss the context, because in one context one thing makes sense, and another context something else makes sense. In other words, tomorrow if you were to go into a prison someplace in the United States and look in the commissary at the goods that were available, you would probably find nothing that you wanted. Um, in other words, it would it would just the, you, you can imagine that that's the case anyway, that the quality was so low and the differentiation was so low that you just sort of held your nose about all of it. On the other hand, if you went into jail and you had been in there for six months and you went into the commissary, now you would make fine graded choices because this is the set of things that are available to you. And you would right. choose that which, right? If you're sensible, you would, you would make choices based upon what's there. Okay, so if we confront lying um, uh, candidates, but much more importantly, structures behind the candidates that constrain anything they can do anyway. That's one context. And if we confront the possibility of real change, that's a different context. So that's what the left has to do. It has to get people aware of the alternative possibility 
and of the possibility of their role bringing it about. And if we don't do that, um, we're not going to get far. And once we do start to do that successfully, we will get very far. Now, immediately, I'm assuming someone would ask, where have you seen in the past movements operate in that fashion? You know, so people are going to ask, where are the, some real-world examples that we could point to that you'd say, okay, these aren't perfect examples, but these are examples of movements and people who are doing what it is you're talking about? Well, I, I mean, to a degree, all do some of it. The extent is how much and, and uh, you know, and, and how successfully. I, I don't really know how to answer that. It, the, the women's movement, um, starting, say, in the late 1960s, had tremendous successes. And it had those tremendous successes because it spoke to its constituency, women, and to a degree also to men, in a manner that revealed a reality that hadn't been perceived uh, and fully understood, and because it it proposed uh, steps to improve. Uh, so those kinds of things have existed and occurred in that case and have occurred in, in uh, numerous other cases. It's just that it's been less successfully true when addressing uh, the economy and the polity, if you will, government. The left has done a, a, a less effective or a less successful job, I think, of describing what we want and how our role can bring it to pass. That was more obvious to people around race and remains so. Not that it's done and not that it's easy or anything, but it was, it was clearer to folks and it was clearer around uh, gender, too. And I think part of the reason why it's not so clear around economy and it's not so clear around polity is the thing we were discussing a little while ago. It's because the left itself isn't clear about it internally and, in fact, has baggage which prevents us often from getting to the truth. So the baggage is the belief that there's a subset of people who are confident and worthy and should make decisions, and then there are other people who aren't. And that baggage, that belief, gets in the way of an effective critique of, and thus an effective program for, economy and polity. Um, and that's why you don't see that many... Let me give you one more story that bears on this. In Argentina some years ago, um, due to economic turmoil, in the you know, failing economic dynamics, um, many, many factories were taken over by their workforce. Uh, this often was not so much the workforce rising up against the owner as the owner leaving uh, a failing operation and the workers basically and wanting to sell it, and the workers basically saying, wait a minute, um, this is our life. You're not selling this. We're taking it. And so they would occupy. And then they would take over the factory, and then they would start running it. So I was in Argentina in a room with about 50 or so uh, people who had come from occupied factories, not one factory, but, I don't know, maybe 30. Um, so uh, uh, the discussion started, and I was there invited to speak about economy and so on. So I suggested we should start by going around the room and people should tell a little bit about their circumstances. And so we did. And by, I don't know, the sixth, seventh person, um, it was very depressed. It started off very upbeat. People were meeting other people like themselves who were running factories in other parts of the country. 
and, uh, you know, it's exciting and so on. But when they started to tell their stories, for some reason, it got very truthful, very fast, and it got very depressing. And by the sixth or seventh person, there were a lot of people in the room who were crying. And the reason was because, well, one person who went near the end, I stopped it at about that point, who went near the end, um, said, I thought I would never say anything like this. I can't imagine I'm going to say this. But I think maybe Margaret Thatcher was right. Margaret Thatcher was a prime minister in the United Kingdom who said there is no alternative. And so this person was saying, I think maybe that view is right. There is no alternative. After all, we took over our factory. The capitalist is gone. Um, many of the, of the high-ranking officials left, too. Um, in fact, most of them left. We equalized incomes. We created the Democratic uh, Council to run the business. And we began to work. And we succeeded. We made this failing industry successful on top of everything else. However, all the old crap is coming back. And that was the refrain that kept repeating, that, that with all these wonderful changes, we've got we two, a couple hmm? uh, We've got two minutes left, Mike. Oh, I'm sorry. With all no, 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 it's okay. Changes, I just wanted to give you a heads up. This is no big deal, too. As I mentioned, we'll have Mike back on the program, so nobody has to well, freak out. We'll, you know. With all the with all the changes, um, still the alienation was coming back, and so we talked about it. And the explanation was, but you kept the old division of labor, so you would have a new person who was a working class person who had no prior credentials or training take over as the chief financial officer, learn the job and do it well, and so that revealed that people were capable of it. But still, you had that person doing it. And you had other people doing only rote and repetitive tasks. And so when the dust cleared, you had the same hierarchy that you had before around the division of labor. And that's where all the old crap is coming back because of the tension and the alienation and the authority um, power dynamics that were associated with that. And what was needed instead was to create a new division of labor in which empowered work and road work were shared equally and everybody could participate then in decisions and had stature and so on. Well, that insight was missing there, which did a great deal of harm to their prospects, and it's missing in the U.S. left also, which does a great deal of harm to our prospects. Well, we have to leave it there. Mike, one of the great thinkers of our time, thank you so much for coming on the program. People are going to learn... A lot, as I have, from listening to you and reading your work. We'll have you back on the program in the future. That's Michael Albert, founder of Z Magazine and ZNet, co-founder of South End Press. Thank you once again for being on the show. This is Meditations you, and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuel. You can listen to this program every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time on prn.fm. That's the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>